0: Recorded live.
1: And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Fellow Adamites, we are seeing the cracks emerge in Babylon. We are seeing the cracks spread. I don't believe it will be too long now before we hear, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And Yahweh willing, we shall all be there to witness it, and all the world shall bear witness to the power of Yahweh. If you have not begun to prepare for the things which are to come, the things which you are already starting to see happen, then you had best do so now. Now is the time to make preparations, gather supplies, make plans, and focus your efforts to keep on the straight and narrow path. Be right with the Heavenly Father, and He shall bring you through the plagues that await this doomed nation. Today is Sunday, December 20, 2009. Joining us from California is Dr. Kevin McDonald, and as usual, Mr. Bill Fink. How are you gentlemen doing tonight? Just fine. Good to be here. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming on tonight. Okay. Would you like to start, sir, with a little bit about your um, background in psychology and your book, The Culture of Critique? Maybe a quick synopsis.
2: Uh, Yes. um, My graduate training was in animal behavior and evolutionary biology. And so my basic uh, theoretical framework is evolutionary biology. And... um, evolutionary psychology and so then um, after being into that for a while I got on the idea of group evolutionary strategies and uh, decided to write some some uh, some material on, on Judaism from the uh, from an evolutionary point of view and um, that resulted in three books and I continued to write on it the third book uh, is the culture critique and it has to do with the, the, criticism of culture, uh, that uh, various Jewish intellectual movements, uh, spearheaded, um, beginning in the late 19th century, I'd say. Uh, I'm thinking about things like psychoanalysis, um, in anthropology, Franz Boas, there are a lot of, uh, you know, cultural Marxists, uh, radical Marxists of various kinds, uh, the Frankfurt School, um, uh, so there's a number of these movements that uh, they all had in common that uh, the core uh, of the people involved in these movements were Jewish, they identified themselves as Jewish, they felt Jewish, that is, and they identified as Jewish. And they saw these movements as uh, aimed at, particular, at achieving particular uh, Jewish cultural goals, that is, uh, they, uh, for, for, for a variety of reasons actually, wanted to change, alter, destroy even the, the culture of the West. Um, actually, early in, in the century especially, quite a few of were communists or close to it. And so in general, this has been the culture of the left uh, that has been so influential throughout the 20th century and continues today. And at this point, uh, you have to say that they are, they are the dominant
0: group.
3: Well, we would totally agree with you. You, you have no, um, no enemies here. <laughs> um we, we might have a slightly different perspective on it, but I, I believe that um, – well, the Frankfurt School in particular is, is a problem that Adolf Hitler saw and got rid of, and, and we were stuck with it. But, but I mean, if they'd have succeeded in Germany, they were coming here anyway. And And I think that the Cultural well, Revolution actually started here probably at the same time around the late 19th century.
2: Yes, it did, and there's no question about that. And it is true that the Frankfurt School was ex- basically expelled from Germany in 1933, um, and they and they came to this country, uh, most of them, um, and they were they've been very influential. Um, in a lot of ways, they were more influential after coming to this country than they were in Germany. And uh, but yeah, it's been it's been very, uh, uh, very you know devastating cultural critique and and. Um, Still very
3: influential, I think. Well, well, so far I only know your work. I, I know your work from a, um, a a paper you wrote that I w- that I thought was very good. It was a good article. It was organized Jewry opposes free speech, and and yes. this actually led me to your book, The Culture of Critique, because I I searched you out on the internet when I saw that somebody had sent me that in an email actually, and right. and I, I look at I look at it this way, you know, organized Jewry today opposes free speech. Because they used our open society to usurp it, and now they want to close it up so that they could uh, maintain their power. M- well, actually, that, that that is historically
2: accurate. If you go back to the 1950s, when so many Jews were communists and they were being hounded by the McCarthy uh, during the McCarthy era, by the investigations and so on, the uh, the Jewish organizations were very much in favor of free speech, academic freedom, and all that. But now that they are on top, that they have really achieved this cultural revolution, things have changed dramatically. And instead of uh, favoring free speech, uh, they are now very much in favor of controls on speech. And uh, the recent Hate Speech Act uh, was a product of the Anti-Defamation League. And actually, it's very obvious that they would want to go much further than they've been able to go in this country. The First Amendment, the Constitution, uh you know, prohibits – uh infringements on free speech is a long American tradition. But in other countries where you don't have this protection, Jewish organizations have uh, fought tooth and nail to uh, restrict free speech uh, along the lines that they approve. Would you say that the the, the fact
1: that most Americans have some sort of disconnect with the past 50 years, they don't realize that 50 years ago these same Jews who are now so vigorously calling for hate speech laws were calling for the removal of all laws governing obscene material – that shows that they're basically at the height of power, since they can conceal these facts that you know happened as recent as five, four to five decades ago.
0: Yes,
2: I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that um, you know Americans tend not to know any history. They don't understand. Uh, they don't, um, and, and this kind of stuff is not even available in, in normal college history courses. You have to, you know, do a lot of reading on the side to understand what things were like then and what what the what the Jewish organizations were up to. Uh, at that time, and how things have changed now. But that, that's quite correct. Uh, the, the, porno, the pornography industry is uh, there's been quite a few things written in that quite a, you know by Jews in academic uh, publications, uh, noting the prominent uh, Jewish role in, in the production of pornography.
3: I, I, exactly. Are, are you familiar? And and I'd like to get into that and, and um, as this progresses. But are you familiar with the work of um, Ralph De Paladino? He was a conservative yes, writer? Yes, I'm fairly
2: familiar with him. I, I know him. I mean, I don't know him, but I, I know a little bit about
3: him, yeah. Well, well, he actually went so far as to say, and and I just ordered your book, The Culture of Critique, by this morning, this morning from Amazon.com, by the way. So I'm huh? only familiar with Chapter 5, which you have at, at KevinMcDonald.net. Yeah. H- however, um, DiTolidano went so far as to say that the the Frankfurt School the the school for social research in Frankfurt was actually the plot for that was hatched at the uh, Marx in, Marx Engels Institute in Moscow.
2: Yes, that, that, I've read that. Yeah, that's that's correct, I
3: believe. And that that was a an overt Soviet attempt to um, to upset or or to infiltrate and usurp German culture. Now, now yes, I'd I, like I, to know. I'm, 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 go ahead. I, I would like to know: Was it Dewey alone that brought the Frankfurt School to Columbia? Or it, I, You know, Benjamin Spock got his doctorate there in 1929, and, and I see a lot of Benjamin Spock's work go hand-in-hand hand with, with a lot of the things that Theodore Adorno wrote, with, which, you know, the destruction of the family and the breakdown. The I think Benjamin Spock attributed to the breakdown of discipline within our families.
2: Yeah, um, as far as Dewey's role, I, 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 you know, if you look at Wheatland's book uh, that I, I reviewed, I think you saw the review that I – I did a Wheatland's book on the Frankfurt School in exile. He does not uh, attribute any, he does not give, uh, do any role in bringing the Frankfurt School there. But there were other faculty members at, at uh, Columbia, and uh, they were able to, you know, basically set up shop there. They they didn't really get much support from Columbia, but they had their own money. Uh, there was this, this Jewish millionaire who, who was the main source of funds for the Frankfurt School. Uh, named Weir, and he uh, he funded them. They they lost some of their investments toward the end of the 30s and so on. So they were sc- kind of scuffling around for uh, space and salaries and stuff. But um, they they're, essentially they were funded by this Jewish millionaire during that period. And then later on, they became funded by the American Jewish uh, the American Jewish Committee. Um, they, they were actually housed in the same. The same building as Commentary Magazine, which is also published by the American Jewish Committee. So this was very much a, a sort of a sort of team effort of the organized Jewish community. It wasn't just these intellectuals; they were strongly connected to the organized Jewish community.
3: Oh, I, I believe that. I sincerely believe they had to. And, and I, I'll get ahead of myself and say that um, you know, when I see that you you connect the Frankfurt School to these '60s um, these '1960s radicals. And a lot of them actually studied under Marcuse and Adorno at, at Berkeley and, and at, at Brandeis University.
2: You mentioned Commentary magazine. They're not. Are they still around? Oh, absolutely. They're they're a very important uh, intellectual magazine. Yeah, I think it began in 1945. Uh, it's, you know, it's, been, it's it's been edited by Norman Podhoritz and, uh and then now his son, I guess. Since about 1960, and so this, this around 1960, they became the flagship for the neocons, you know, the neoconservatives. Before that, they were far left, and with the neocons, they were only sort of moderately left, and sort of their main goal uh, after that was really, you know, sort of pro-Israel uh, propaganda at that point. I came across a website that looked like their, their website,
1: for, a website for Commentary Magazine. It looks like they've gone online now, and they, oh, yeah. were, apolog, they were apologists for communism, And they tried to dispel the the notion that free love in the Soviet Union was anything bad. So I posted original documentary evidence taken on the scene at the time, you know, writings and accounts of what was going on and what was being done to the women that refused to comply. And they never let it get up there. They never let my comment get up there. Well,
2: I'm not surprised. But my understanding is that um, until about 1960, they were pretty much on the far left, and there's no question that they – opposed, you know, McCarthy or kinds of uh, um, restrictions on free speech and, and and that kind of stuff. They You know, they, these sort of attempts to to find communists in the government, they opposed all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but um, after by 1960, they became anti-communist uh, because of uh, Todd Horowitz uh, was, was very concerned about Jews in the Soviet Union, very concerned about uh, Israel mainly. It's actually, the first, the most important thing was Israel. And I think that at that point they realized that uh, being pro-communist was not a great idea for, uh, um, for Israel because Israel, you know, needed the United States military. And so they, they, so the, uh, ever since that time, you know, the, the, uh, commentary and the neocons have pushed strong military alliance. They were very anti-communist. Uh, they, you know, like during the during the Reagan administration, they were very powerful in the Reagan administration. Um, so they, you know, they they were pretty effective as anti-communist uh, people during the 1980s. But again, their main their main agenda for doing that was to, uh, to forge these alliances with Israel and to help the Jews in the Soviet Union, because by by the 1960s, even uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, and uh, partly because of what Jews had done earlier in the century in Russia. In, in the Soviet Union, and and um, because Jews formed a very you know were at the top of the society as they
3: always are, so um, I, I was going to ask moment, how much of that anti-Semitism may have been just propaganda. Um, get-
0: well,
2: there was you know there, there was certainly a, a pretty large exodus of Jews at that time, and Jews still were part part of the upper echelons in the Soviet society, so it wasn't as if they were thrown out completely, but Jews were actually removed from a lot of positions, and, and Russians started to take back their country. I mean, historically what happened is, in, you know, with the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Revolution, uh, Jews became absolutely dominant in the Soviet Union, no question about that. And uh, But there's an awful lot of resentment, a lot of anti-Jewish feelings in Russia. And it wasn't really until after Stalin died... And really, the starting was when Stalin was still alive. But after that, uh, a lot of anti-Semitism came to the fore. And, for example, a lot of in, in Poland, where where Jews had been a, a big part of the communist government after World War II, um, there was a lot of anti uh, anti-Jewish feeling in Poland at that time. And a lot of Jews just just were forced to leave Poland uh,
3: in the end. Uh, so,
2: um, well, right. Well,
3: I'm sorry. I, I, what I look at is um, is when when Russia privatized its its corporate structure, it the whole thing ended up in the hands of eight or ten Jews.
2: The oligarchs. That, that is quite correct. Yeah, that is correct. And and uh, so I, I'm not saying that Jews were completely run out. In fact, as you, as you were saying, I mean they they remain pretty power, very powerful and. Even are today, I mean, the, the oligarchs have been trimmed down somewhat by Putin, but my understanding is that the Jews are quite powerful in Russia right now, and uh, I'm talking to some people.
1: It
0: would so, be
2: correct uh,
1: to say that in the upper echelons they remain, but popular sentiment towards them began to mount.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, the average Russian, there's a huge amount of anti in the Soviet Union uh, by, by Russian people, you know, the Russian ethnic uh, population. Um and, uh but as part of fighting World War II, I think the government tried to incorporate Russians more and try to mollify them, Uh and they, part of the deal was that, that there'd be more room for Russians at the top in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and so, I, you know, I would, a lot of people think that Stalin was murdered because uh, he was starting to turn anti-Jewish, and um, I'm not sure that was the case, but he certainly was becoming anti-Jewish. For one thing, you know, um, Golda Meir came to Russia in 1948 and and got a huge reception from from Jews in Russia. While Stalin did not appreciate that that, that there are all these Jews in, in the Soviet Union whose first allegiance was to Israel. I mean that, that just didn't sit well. And so uh, the, the Russian government definitely, I mean the Soviet Union started to definitely get less less dominated by Jews uh, around that time um, forward. If you, read, if you read a good book on this, it's is Yuri Sleskin's book called The, the uh, Jewish Century, and it, it recounts the rise of the Jews uh, in Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, so just the absolute apex of power in Russia, you know, dominating the arts, the sciences, the politics, and everything, the government, Everything. Um, and then, uh, after World War II, their power slipping away and, and a lot of Jews emigrating. And, like I said, you know, Commentary Magazine and Podhorts, their whole thing was to, um, you know, help the Jews in the Soviet Union, to help Israel. And they became very anti-Soviet. I mean, uh, you, it, it's very clear they, they uh, hated the Soviet Union. Uh, but it was for, because of Jewish interest. They felt the Jewish interest had shifted. You know, whereas at one time, uh, Jews around the world were very pro-Soviet. Around, uh, by 1960, you had a significant group of Jews. They were not the majority of Jews. I mean, even in 1960. In fact, I just read Pot Horitz's book called Why Are Jews Liberals? And one of the points he makes is that he was a pariah in the Jewish community. I mean, he was the editor of commentary and an important guy, influential. and, and he. But uh, the fact is he'd go to these Jewish conferences and he'd, Condemn the Soviet Union and, and just stony silence and hatred. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of there's some subtlety of what was going on there. Parts of the Jewish community had, um, you know, become anti-Soviet uh, by 1970,
3: certainly. In um in chapter five, of the culture of critique, you relate that in Germany, sociology was referred to as a Jewish science. Is there a non-Jewish sociology? I mean, um, I, I, I'm basically, I'm a traditional Christian, and I see no need for such a science in a properly homogenous society.
2: Well, okay, I think, you know, sociologists study, um, you know, the structure of society. I think there's it, it certainly a kind of social science that, that would probably occur in any case. But what happened in sociology was that you had the influx of these of these socialist communist types, and they sort of swept aside. And before that, uh, sociology had been a science, and it was a science of, you know, social class and, and that sort of thing, and how different social class people have different attitudes, and, you know, they both, you know, upper class people at that time voted more Republican, Democrats were more working class, you know, so they study that kind of stuff, that, that's fine. But... um you know what happened is that that uh, you had this, this Jewish influx. Uh, part of it, you know, were the Frankfurt School. They they thought of themselves as sociologists, and they had this Marxist bent and and uh, very theoretical, ideological, and and uh, radically left. You know, and, and so that uh, made sociology less of a science and more of a you know part of the political. Um, you know, it had a huge political agenda at that point. I mean, I think it's possible to do sociology without having a political agenda. But, but these guys, as soon as you brought in these Jewish radicals, well, then they had a political agenda, and it became very clear. And that's what what the complaint was about the Frankfurt School and Sociology in Germany. And actually, people have made the same point about sociology in the United States as it developed later on, that it became a Jewish science. I mean, in fact, if you look at cultural critique, at one point there, I think I – quote some Jewish guys saying that uh, departments of sociology were downed by Jews to the point that uh, people could go around that they could actually have Jewish uh, – they, they would meet the requirements to have a, an actual service for, you know, sort of a Jewish religious service in the Department of Sociology. So, um, yeah, it became – it is a, a science that's associated with Jews. Uh, in psychology, uh, it's been sort of complicated because you got psychoanalysis, which is definitely a Jewish science. If you read Culture Critique, Chapter Four is about psychoanalysis.
3: Oh, I think. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, No, I had read enough of the comments that you made about psychoanalysis in Chapter Five, and, and yeah. I totally agreed that it's a Jewish science. Yeah. Oh man. Psychoanalysis. And, and you made an excellent comment there about how elastic it, it you know, it was, and yeah. and, and the
0: impact with it. Had anything
2: you could prove anything
3: with
0: it.
2: You know, there, were, there was no sense of empirical scientific standards, you know, and so they could uh, prove anything that, that, you know, that families caused anti-Semitism in a certain way and all that. I mean, that, that's their, they had a whole agenda there, and, and uh, psychoanalysis could easily be molded into doing whatever they wanted for it.
0: Doesn't
1: that
2: fly in the face of the traditionally accepted scientific method? Absolutely, and and again, if you read chapter four of Culture to T, the, the, the big the big problem I had with psychoanalysis, in a way, is not so much the ideas, but the way they ran, because their ideas could be disproven or, or just rejected if it was a real science. But so what? What they did was they ran psychoanalysis sort of like a communist cell. That is, if you if you believed it, fine, you could you could be part of the group. But if you started to disagree with the ethical comments or something, you were just thrown out on the street. I mean, they would just throw you out. And, and so there was,
0: it was very much
3: like being a member of the Communist Party. And there was no um, resistance to any of this amongst tenured academics in, in peer-reviewed journals or anything like that?
2: Well, you know, the story of psychology is a little more complicated because psychoanalysis did not become dominant in American psychology in the same way that um, they became they became much more dominant in psychiatry. Uh, psychoanalysis did because it, you know it, it, it purported to have a theory of neurosis and psychopathology. So, and in, in 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 sort of mainstream scientific psychology, you you had behaviorism. Behaviorism was a very tough theory. Those guys did not like psychoanalysis. They did not think it was science. They thought it was ridiculous. You can go all the way back to the, you know a hundred years ago, and behaviors were making fun of psychoanalysis. I mean, they didn't have any experiments. Behaviorists had you know very much in the scientific rigor. And so they uh, established all these very uh, strong standards. And I always tell my students, you know, uh, the behaviors are the reason why you have to take statistics. The behaviors are the reason why you have to to take experimental methods and think about control groups and all that. That's what scientific psychology is about. So they really pretty much kept psychoanalysis on the sidelines in mainstream uh, departments of psychology. But it became dominant in psychiatry. And the only thing that killed it in psychiatry was the fact that you had the rise of biological psychiatry where, you know, you have medication and things like that, where you think of schizophrenia as some kind of uh, malfunction in in the neurons in the brain. And psychoanalysis basically couldn't deal with that. So now psychoanalysis is completely dead, pretty much. I mean, the only people that take psychoanalysis seriously are people in uh, history departments or English departments, and nobody takes them seriously. So...
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's, lost their, it's lost their scientific credibility completely.
3: Was, was the Horkheimer group hostile to empirical science and sociology because somehow they already knew that many Christians were hostile to Jews due to their actual experiences with Jews?
2: Well, they, they certainly were opposed to empirical methods in and sociology, and, and that's one of the, the, the points that I, I make in, in that Chapter 5 and in that article on Weakland's. Wheatland and so on, but um, I, I do think that uh, that, and, and it's not just Horkheimer. You know, it's, one of the things that, uh, again, I just I just finished this, reading this book by uh, Norman Podhoretz on Why Are Jews Liberals, and he, he traces the, the history of anti-Semitism. And yeah, uh, uh, basically, Jews have the idea that Christians uh, hate Jews, and, and that that. Uh, the main source of anti-Semitism throughout history has been Christianity. So they want to do whatever they can to, you know, make life difficult for Christianity. And, and, you know, from the, from the moment they got to America, for example, uh, at least uh, from the big immigration in the late 19th century, the, the whole thrust has been to remove Christianity from public places, to get, you know, prayer out of public schools, to, to, um, you know, to really do what they can to, you know, minimize the importance of Christianity. So, that, and that continues today. I mean, the, the war on Christmas is basically a different
1: In their own way, they sometimes become very candid about this. And I think it was a, was it a Bernard Lazar quote who said that the Jew is not happy with simply de-Christianizing. He wants to Judaize and he destroys the faiths of those he hates.
2: Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I, I hadn't read that one, but um, I think that's right. I think there's an attempt to 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 uh to infuse Jewish culture into the as part of the mainstream and then become even dominant i mean for example Hanukkah I mean hanukkah, whoever heard of Hanukkah when I was a kid not, I hadn't heard of it uh but now it's everywhere and now we have a hanukkah party at the Christ, at the white house uh uh to watch television the Hanukkah lights are all over the place this time of year
3: well so, yeah is isn't, isn't that all hypocritical? That that's the Christian indictment against Jews. The, the first Christian indictment against Jews is, is hypocrisy, isn't it? it? It's, um you know, we can't have Christmas trees, but they could have Hanukkah parties. Well, yeah,
2: and, and and there are
3: places I understand
2: where um, Christmas, where Christian, um, you know, specifically Christian decorations like the creche, you know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph have been banned, but Hanukkah candles are not. And, you um, know, that's the kind of thing that uh, – but I, I think that the the, uh, the uh, Jewish influence, you know, has been felt in a lot of areas and will continue to uh, be felt in the future. Uh, you know, some legal scholars want to bring Jewish law more to the fore in, in the American legal system, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, we're, I don't think we've seen the apex here still—it's uh, hard to see where this is all going, but you know it's not going to stop.
3: I, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about 18th and 19th century anthropology, and and I know it's attributed to Rousseau, and and that may be to Rousseau, and that may be improper. Did Franz Boas really um, create the the notion of the noble savage as we know it today? He's responsible for
1: cultural anthropology, isn't he? And anthropology. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Inflicting
2: with um, Yeah, I, I think of uh, the, the, the uh, I think Rousseau is starting this idea of the noble savage, but um, Franz Boas, yeah, if you look at chapter two of Culture of Critique, that's where I talk about Boas and uh, the influence in anthropology, and up until Boas, the dominant view on anthropology was more biological, more evolutionary, and, um, Boa, and you know, one part of that idea was that Western Christian culture was at the sort of apex of of human culture, and um, and so the, the Boas and those guys uh, came in there and, and promoted cultural relativism in various ways, and tried to you know to sort of de-emphasize Western contributions, Western uniqueness, and and really in the same way as psychoanalysis to do, to um, introduce a sort of non-scientific approach in anthropology, which you still see today, unfortunately, where you you sort of catalog all these minute differences among cultures, but you don't have any theories about anything,
3: and it's all just
2: different, and it's all out there.
3: Well, well as far as I'm concerned, the underlying motive in, amongst all of these um, Jewish, people, Jewish so-called scientists is to encourage race mixing in, in our societies, there oh. multiculturalism and diversity and, and eventually a total breakdown of Christian society.
2: I think that it is, uh, that's an accurate statement, actually. And, I, and Again, culture critique, I think one of the most important chapters, maybe the most important chapter, is Chapter 7 on immigration policy, uh, where I show that the organized Jewish community was the main force in changing the immigration laws. And if you look at Jewish intellectuals even now, and, and you can go from the far right to the far left among Jews, uh, they all believe in uh, massive immigration. And I can count... Uh, Maybe five Jews in the whole country don't believe that. In, in other words, they they believe that we should maximize the number of immigrants from Africa, Asia, wherever, and to make white Christians a minority. And and there's no question that that is,
0: uh, very that. articulated.
1: So they are. They trust that in the media. They are actively pursuing the dispossession and
2: marginalization of our people. That 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 is the that is the thesis that I have uh, tried to elaborate. Yes. And, and part of it's in, in culture critique, and I've continued to write on There's a lot. Of, there's a book called Cultural Insurrections where I have a lot of my more recent essays. Um, and I continue to write. I have a, a, a journal online called The Occidental Observer, um, and I, I blog a lot. So I, I keep, you know, I keep writing about these issues. And one of the – certainly the most important issue of all these things, the one you just uh, uh, touched on there, is the the – Dispossession of the white Christian peoples in America. I mean, and that, well, I that is, and, and, and throughout the West, really.
3: We we definitely believe. I, I mean, most of the people that listen to this program believe that um, that culture is a is a product of biology. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I, I think that we achieve the the culture that we have because of our biological qualities. Well, I, that
2: is another. That's another thing that I've been working a lot on. And yeah, my, my my belief is that European peoples are different. We're prone to individualism, and our basic political and cultural institutions are a product of us as a people, as a biological people. And um, you could put, uh, you know, if you had, if this country was founded by by you know black Africans, it'd be a different country. And um, so the, the particular institutions we have. uh representative government uh, and so on, uh, capitalism, individualism, and all of these things that we take for granted really are part of, you know, the Western peoples uh, and their biological tendencies. Uh, and, um, and, and people don't, the, the ideology of multiculturalism that, you know, that is that nothing will change. It will, you know, 50 years, 100 years, we could bring all these Africans in, or Chinese, whatever, and we'll still be the same America. Well, we won't be the same America. We'll be a different country. When I, you know, 1950, uh, this country was 90% white, and when when this country becomes 40% white, it's not going to be a, a European country anymore. Who knows what kind of government the other side to have? Uh, it, it won't it won't resemble America in any way that
3: we would understand it. And it but seems have... a great
2: trend. Oh, sorry, sir, go on.
3: Uh, I'm sorry, Brian. Have you noticed the the hypocrisy in the media where in the middle east where are to support the destruction of of muslims and or radical islam and and then on the other hand in europe and in america where're to embrace these people and treat them as equals in our society is that the, i sure know, have i sure have uh, that, that's a very important uh, you know
2: hypocrisy <laughs> You can find double standards uh, in Jewish behavior uh, repeatedly and, and pervasively, but uh, that is certainly one of them. Uh, you know, well, they, well, it
3: makes me very happy that a um, uh, you know an academic notices that. It's crazy. It, it's very destructive. It's it's.
2: Um, well, it's, I think it's staring us all in the face. And uh, if you look at Jewish behavior, they you know there
3: are a few Jews
2: uh, who are opposed to Muslim immigration. Uh, because they think it will hurt Jewish interests, but the organized Jewish community has not gone in that direction. What they've tried to do is to reach out to Muslims and to bring them. They're like everybody else. to bring them in there, and they've certainly been very much in favor of of yeah. Islam in Europe. If you go to England, you know, the, the, and France, and all these societies, you know, mosques are, are going up everywhere. They're bringing all these Muslims in. And
3: the Muslim community is in they're, conquest. I'm sorry, well, I they're think I them. think they do,
2: yeah. and and I think that and. Historically what you see is the Jewish community has welcomed these people in, in Europe at the same time you know, carrying on a war with them over there in, in Israel.
3: Yeah. And I well noticed well the if great... you look at I'm, I'm sorry. if you look at the um the history of Jews and Muslims, it, it was um and, and this can be well documented, it was the Jews in Spain who brought the Muslim the, the Muslim conquerors into Spain in the seventh century. That that is
2: uh I believe the case. they that is certainly an accusation that has been leveled uh, over the centuries, and, and uh, my understanding is uh, it's probably you – know, they, they aided the, the Muslim conquest of Christian Spain. And um, so, yeah, that, that was that's was something that
3: um, – it, it was the, explained uh, by Martin Luther that they aided the Mongol conquest of the, of the Aryan cities of Eastern Europe.
1: Also, my mainstream history textbook – referring to the fall of Constantinople in 1453, claimed that an important gate had accidentally been left unlocked and the Turks were able to pour through it and seize the city. Well, I don't think several months into a siege, there would be any reason for the gate to be unlocked. It would have been permanently locked until the
2: siege was resolved. Yes, yeah, so a lot of people believe that Jews were involved in that and uh, that, that um, the Jews hated the, the, the downfall of
0: Constantinople.
2: And- if we could just backstep real quick, I wanted to say something,
1: that it seems like the great tragedy of conservatism today is that people that I interact with on a daily basis lament that the nation's no longer like the nation they thought it would be, and that they 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 um, complain that all these Chinese, Mexicans coming in, they, they don't care about the founding fathers and this and that. And I point out to them, well, why would they? They're not their founding fathers, and then they get all offended because it becomes
2: a race issue.
1: All right, all right.
2: But that's the problem with conservatism. That they can't really talk about race uh, and uh, publicly. You know, if you go on Fox News, I suppose is the main conservative media outlet, but they never talk about race there. And and they they have the idea. Well, we can. They never complain about about legal immigration, which is you know more of a problem than the illegal immigration.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's changing the society dramatically, but they never object to it. And then I mean, conservatism simply cannot survive. I mean. Republican Party can't survive if it continues to, uh, you know, keep importing millions and millions of non-whites. It's simply going to become a minority party. But one of my ideas is that the Republican Party is becoming a party of white people. And, and you know, even uh, now, at least 60% of white people are voting Republican, and almost like 90% of Republican votes come from white people. So, uh um, Politics in this country is becoming racial, and I think people are going to, in the future, be even more aware of that. And the, the, the fault line, the political fault line is going to be racial fault lines, and everybody's going to be aware of it. And okay. these conservatives who want to think there's nothing, that race doesn't matter or something like that, they're just going to be laughed out of town. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, they're going to, everybody's going to see that race is... The most important dividing line in our society. When well, we you have seventy percent of white people voting for one party, you know you've got a you've got a racial split here.
3: Well, well, is that evidence that biology trumps propaganda?
2: I think yeah, it, it does, and, and at a deep level. That that is, I think uh, these white people, even though the Republicans are never, of course, talking about white people. They're voting, uh, for, for white, uh, they're, you know, again, 90% of Republican votes come from whites. These are people who feel disenfranchised, the Democratic Party. They go look at the Democratic Party, and you got Obama, you got Jesse Jackson, you got, um, all these Mexican activists and everything. It's just a party of diversity. It's a multicultural party. The Republican Party, uh, is becoming the party of white people. It'll take some time. I mean, there's still some, some, white people who vote Democrat, but it's going to be fewer and fewer as time goes on because they're just not going to feel welcome. They're, they're not going to have very much power in the Democratic Party.
1: But if they continue flooding this country, it'll get to the point where even if we have a Democratic Republic, we're still going to be outvoted just by virtue of being outnumbered. That's correct. That
2: is correct. And that's that's the worst nightmare scenario that I see. because I, I think that
0: when that happens,
2: it's projected to happen now around 2050, if that happens, then then uh, there, there will be. Uh, uh, I think I think white people will be in danger because I think a lot of these minorities uh, they they hold grudges against us. Certainly Jews do, uh, black do, Mexicans do. So there's just a, there's going to be a huge problem uh, facing us at and that point. You, we become less powerful. Have you noticed this glaring double standard that? We're
1: always told that, you know, one man, one vote when it's a country like, say, South Africa. They say majority rules and the blacks are the majority, so the white minority can't rule. But yet, when whites become a minority somewhere, suddenly they're, they're, they're told that majority rules, minority be quiet. You can't derail the country. And no one really cares that a minority is suffering when it's a white minority.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's no, there's no, um, very few tears lost for, for white minorities. I mean, South Africa, Whites are going to just have to leave South Africa, I think, in the long run, all whites, and just let it fall apart. Let it happen. My understanding right now is that crime levels are really, really high, and, and white people uh, are
0: in physical danger, you know, to go on the
2: street. More people die every day in
1: Johannesburg than are dying in Baghdad on general.
2: Yeah. it's it's a It's a... Terrible situation over there. And I, again, if I'm any rational white person, I think would have left a long time ago. And, know and
3: that's sure. that's that's another. I believe that's another uh, another um, biological consequence. It, it's. I don't know if I should term it that way. That that's not really what I'm trying to say. It's it's a matter. Crime is a, a result of biology too. I I believe
2: that that we. Well, that, yeah. If you look at at uh, the, the work of people like Phil Rushton. Um, Glade Whitney and people like that have uh, certainly amassed the arguments and the theory uh, to argue that some racial groups are more prone
3: to criminality than others. I, I live in a in a rural county in upstate New York, and we don't lock anything. Never. Right. Well, I, I mean, I don't have to worry about anything.
2: Yeah, well, I, I live in Southern California, and I lock
3: things. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I grew up in New Jersey, and, and you had to lock everything. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Jersey City. And, yeah. and everything had to be locked all the time. And, and it would still not be there half the time when you get back to it. it it's But, yeah, it's um, – I, I spent a lot of time in rural Massachusetts as a boy, and it was the same way. We didn't lock anything. Yeah. And, well, uh, I,
2: I grew up in a town in, in Wisconsin, and, you know, we felt absolutely safe. Uh, and um, it was an all-white town, different, different religion, you know, different Protestant, Catholic, and so on. But, you know, we just felt uh, – Secure, homogeneous,
3: uh, it really was. So um, it's, it's not really a, a topic here tonight, and, and I don't want to bother you with it, but I, I personally don't believe there was a Holocaust. However, and, and studies in prejudice seems to me to purposely deflect any thought that the actual behavior of Jews in society might be the real cause for outbreaks of anti-Semitism. And, and I think they've, you know, whether the Holocaust happened or not, the Jews have finally effected that. Through through the Holocaust propaganda is that you cannot criticize the Jews as a class because the the anti semite label is so is so dreaded.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, my my focus of my research I haven't really delved into the Holocaust much, but uh, I'm very interested in the culture of the Holocaust and how, how the Holocaust is used as a weapon in our society to attain Jewish political goals. Uh, uh, it's usually used, used by Israel, too. I mean, any criticism of Israel is viewed as anti-Semitism, and they'll talk about the Holocaust uh, uh, at uh drop of a hat. So they, they defend themselves, no matter how brutal they are the Palestinians. With they, the Holocaust. Uh, pardon? With the Holocaust, and they're perpetrating
3: yeah, the Holocaust. Absolutely.
1: basically. absolutely. So, it's safe to say that basically they use the Holocaust as a shield to hide behind while they strike at others. So they'll level an entire village... The Arabs will cry and say, look what they've done to our people. The Western diplomats will look at them, and then they'll shout Holocaust, and the diplomats all go away.
2: Well, it's probably not as crude as that, but, yeah, that that, that is basically what happens. I mean, there's no question that the Holocaust um, is used to uh, uh, advance uh, Jewish interests, and specifically nowadays with Israel, but also with immigration. I mean, anybody uh, – I mean, in fact, I, if you look at my blog, I, I – I, I was struck, they had these arguments in, in the state senate in New York, by the way, you might have come across this, where they're talking about these Jewish uh, state senators who were they were debating a bill on homosexual marriage, and, and they were bringing up the fact that their their relatives died in the Holocaust, and this is why we should be in favor of homosexual marriage. And that's what I mean, the Holocaust is used to advance this sort of leftist agenda, wherever it is. I mean, homosexual marriage, immigration, um, you know, you name it, multiculturalism, no. this, that, and the other thing, the Holocaust is used for Becoming a new religion.
3: It is. It is a new religion. Well, well, when they started beating the drum for homosexual unions, a lot of rabbis came out in the pages of the New York Times uh, announcing their, their affairs with other men or, or their relationships with other men. And, and you yeah. definitely were the leaders of, of that movement.
2: Jews, Jews would vote um, much higher percentages for being married than, than other people. No question about that.
3: You, you even though
1: even though their own religious teachings would be against that, or they claim that they're against that, they're still in favor of it because it weakens our society as a
2: whole. Well, that, that, you know, again, I um, if you look at that, I, I just wrote that blog, and, There's a guy named Charles uh, Silverberg, I guess, uh, wrote quite a while ago, and he's Jewish and writing about Jews in America. And he made that exact point, that Jews don't really care about homosexuality. It's not like they really believe in homosexuality particularly, but they see homosexuality as subverting American culture, and therefore they're for it. In other words, it's something that they see uh, as sort of part of the critique of, of our culture, and therefore something that they support.
3: Well, I have a lot of experience, in, you know, with people in New York City and, and the New York City area, and about a million of them happen to be Jews. And I, I've noticed an, a very high frequency of Jewish homosexuals, but they hardly ever have Jewish lovers.
2: Interesting. I,
3: I, I've heard that myself. I actually had
2: talked to the, a Jewish intellectual once, and he was saying that, too. I've never seen a formal study of it. But um, it's pretty common, I guess, and, and and perhaps more common than the population at large. Uh, so, uh, and that's something that probably should be investigated and uh, sort of fleshed out theoretically why that would be. But I, I think it may it may well be true. I've heard it from a number of different places, and pretty credibly.
3: Well, that's um, empirical experience.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and that, and that was
3: this guy too.
2: Again, this guy's a Jewish intellectual. And, and he was just noting that if you go to, down to Greenwich Village, you see an awful lot of Jews, you know, having dinner with other men and and associating with other men. And, and
3: right, and those other men are very
2: rarely Jewish. I, I didn't, that he didn't tell me that, but it, that's interesting that they're not, I didn't know that.
3: They're almost you think always that, Irish or Hispanic or Negro, they're, they're very rarely Jewish.
1: Do you think that would be so they can remove somebody else from their own community and their own breeding pool and assure that that person is unlikely to have any offspring? Geez, I
2: do I, I really don't know, but it, it, I mean, it's something that should be investigated. I think uh, the, the prevalence of homosexuality among Jews. I've never seen a scientific uh, study of it, but it, I, I think you know. I've heard, as I say, I've heard a number of people talk about their general impressions that it, it's it's higher. It's a higher percentage.
3: So, what other sciences, you know, that came out of the Enlightenment should be we be wary of besides? Um cultural anthropology and, and sociology and, and psychoanalysis. I, well, I, I, think, I
2: think basically at this point, uh, if you look at the academic world, all the social sciences and humanities have been pretty much uh, taken over by the cultural left. Um, if you look at English departments, you look at um, uh, departments even in history, you uh, um,
3: Psychology, uh, you know, name it. Um, I, I'm a somewhat of a student of the Greek classics, and I have noticed it in the Catholic classics, and especially in um, Near East archaeology. It, it's you you can't get. A, I, I don't see any more Anglo-Saxon Near Eastern archaeologists. They're all Jews. Is that right? I did not. I've noticed it's that. I subscribe to the Near Eastern archaeology archaeological journal it's it's from the american institute of archaeology and 99 percent of the articles seem to be written by jews i mean i'm t- pulling that number off the top of my head but that that's how prevalent they are
2: well with, with near eastern archaeology i can sort of understand why jews would be very interested in that but
3: well right um, I'm, I'm talking you know from from persia to to Anatolia. it's it's yeah. uh, the same story interesting I've noticed,
1: too, even economics textbooks now place an emphasis on so-called economic discrimination, which they define as traditionally privileged groups, such as white males and Christians, um, discriminating against and oppressing underprivileged groups, such as women and minorities. And that really has nothing to do with the study of economics.
2: I, I didn't know that. that, that
0: I'm not, I
1: guess
2: I'm not surprised, uh, but you know, the cultural left has taken over every area of the of the uh, social sciences and humanity and the The only exceptions, you know, are really the natural sciences and computer science and things like that. Um, I don't think that that kind of, in, you know, they just don't deal with that. I mean, they, they don't deal with those kinds of issues. It's hard to put, you know, white oppression into a course on physics. but I suppose they find a way, but I... I, I, don't I don't imagine know. it would be hard to politicize the periodic table of elements. I should
3: think so. <laughs> Maybe, you know, they... They can be creative, so I I don't know, we'll see. Can you imagine that certain abhorrent behavioral qualities may be innate? Uh, I mean, is it fair to make the assumption that, I'm sorry, to make the assessment that Aryans, even without Christianity, have been repulsed by certain qualities found to be prevalent among Jews for many centuries, and, and that they are alien to us? Is that, could that, you know, the Jews have a stereotype and and they've had the same stereotype for two thousand years.
0: Yeah.
3: I think those stereotypes were more common among white
2: people among Aryans so called, um say you know, before nineteen before Second World War. I think they were definitely there. Nowadays, you know, there has been such a propaganda campaign and most white people seem to think of Jews as just, you know, moral paragons and
0: and all that.
2: Um most
3: uh, you white know, people,
2: the stereotypes are still there.
3: I think, I think um, they. Uh, but well, it seems to me that the stereotypes are, are definitely um, products of biology. That the stereotypes are real. They're not just. Um, they're, they're not just prejudices. So well, I, that... I think yeah. I think, I think basically, and
2: I have a chapter on that in, in my second book on Jews. Uh, the a lot of the stereotypes probably had a lot of truth to them. I mean, the Jews. We're you know in the Middle Ages prefer and, and we're involved in things like money lending and, and things sort of predatory practice, things that that seemed obtuse and, and cruel, you know, exploitative uh to, to other people. So I think the idea of Jews having negative personality traits uh, is part of the stereotype. I mean I'm a t i, I am mean, I, I would not say that all the Jews are like that by any means. Uh, well right. I think that's <laughs> It's about, a lot of people, and I think some people like you, you've had a lot of personal experience. Because like if you live in New York, I, I haven't had that much experience with Jews, but I've never lived in a really predominantly Jewish area. Uh, but if you live among them, then you, you start, and then I think that's where, uh, people, these, these attitudes, because I've talked to a lot of people who, who like if they were from New York or some other big area, urban area where they really run into a lot of Jews, they tend to have more negative attitudes. And, and it's not, it's not so much the theoretical stuff sort of like that I talk about, like Jews involved in immigration policy or something. It's more on a personal level that they really didn't like. They were, they were mistreated by, uh, more and more Jews or something
3: like that. Well, well so that's right. That, that's right. And that's why I, I raised the, um, point that perhaps Horkheimer and Adorno reject Empirical experience with in, in relation with anti-Semitism because they know what the results are going to be, so they have to reject it.
2: Yeah, in fact, there were some studies in the 1940s of American attitudes, and you know they had uh, you know the traditional stereotypes that Jews were you know sort of you know really sort of exploited businessmen. Now, if your landlord was Jewish, you you know you had problems, and Jew Jews are sort of taking advantage of other people. That was one of those paradigms. It was there in empirical research, but in uh, and Horkheimer and, and the Frankfurt School, they had a choice of either trying to deal with that and see if it was, how true it was or something. But instead, they just rejected that even the possibility that Jewish behavior could be involved in that.
3: Uh, I believe and they, they, had, they had to reject it. They, it they, uh, I believe they had to reject it because they knew what the outcome would be. Well, <laughs> that, that is correct. Uh, they, they, well, they, they would. They. they uh, <laughs>
1: you're probably right about that so they made no room for the possibility that Jewish behavior, Jewish attitudes and Jewish values led to anti-Jewish sentiment
2: no, it was all, it was all uh, the whole anti-Semitism was located within the, the families of non-Jews I mean it was a pathology of non-Jews it had nothing that would ever to do with Jewish behavior even now, I mean like the ADL will do these surveys and they'll um like, for example, one of the questions that the Frankfurt School asked on the, on the theory of uh, the questionnaire of anti-Semitism is um, if, if there are a lot of Jews in, in the neighborhood, would that make the – would that sort of make the, the – the the would the neighborhood become – have a sort of Jewish atmosphere to it? Now, if you answered yes to that, you would consider that was a mark against you as an anti-Semite. But, you know, I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, in other words, anybody who – um, you know, had a, had sort of things that were, could be true about Jews that Jews would, would want to sort of live next to you know near each other. If you look at the historically, Jews have always lived near each other. You know, these Jewish ghettos, you know, throughout Europe and in Brooklyn. You go to Brooklyn, you got Jewish ghettos of Orthodox Jews. But if you if you said uh, on a questionnaire that that, that Jews like to sort of be near each other and, and so on, that, that same anti-Semitism, even though it's true. So, uh, truth has nothing to do with these things, and they they just want to develop these theories of anti-Semitism in which, as you said, behavior has nothing to do with it. It's it's just completely irrelevant.
1: I have a quote from the Jewish author Bernard Lazar. He said, By what qualities or defects has the Jew drawn upon himself such universal reprobation? Why has he alternately and in equal measure been maltreated and hated by Egyptians and Romans? by Persians and Arabs, by Turks and Christian nations. It is because the Jew is everywhere and right down to the present day has remained an asocial being.
3: I I would like to know, from from reading the culture of critique, the first thing that struck me when I got to your um, discourse on the chapter on anti-Semitism in the authoritarian personality, why would Adorno even include such a chapter in a book on authoritarian personality? Why would it need a chapter on anti-Semitism?
2: Well, you know, the the authoritarian personality, a lot of it was directed at developing a a theory of anti-Semitism. All the questionnaires and everything were directed at that, mainly, even more, say, than anti-black
3: attitudes. Um, And And what what I'm trying to say is that seems to me like a a bait and switch, which is what we used to accuse Jewish merchants of when I was a kid. Um, They're writing about one thing, but in in reality, they want to write about something else. It's but they don't want to be explicit.
2: They don't want to be explicit about well, it. They, there, they
3: but... want, yeah, they want to explain anti-Semitism
2: as caused by authoritarian families. You know that 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 uh, if the, if the parents uh, behave in a certain way, then children would be anti-Semites. Uh, and, and of course, that removes Jewish behavior from the equation. It's not relevant. The, the problem. Uh, and it sense like it's just caused by bad upbringing,
3: basically. And I just can't I, – I don't know how I, – I understand why, and I read your – and, and uh, most of your remarks were just excellent. I, I understand why they were doing what they were doing, but I just don't see how it would add up in, in real academia, uh, like where? how the two go together. I don't get it. <laughs> well, that that is, you know, I mean – it is remarkable
2: that uh, the authoritarian personality was as influential as it became. Uh, And and part of that was, you know, and and again, that review I did of Wheatland's book, they made it very clear that the American Jewish Committee, commentary magazine, they were promoting this thing. I mean, this wasn't just another academic book coming out. This book was promoted. This was, you know, uh, praise to the skies. It was, There were all these uh, articles about it, you know, in the commentary, and um, it became, you know, and then Jewish academics would give it very good reviews and stuff like that. That's how it works. I mean, it's about, you know, controlling the means of opinion making. You know, that's what.
3: It it definitely has to be orchestrated behind the scenes because it's promoted the same way all of these. these sixty radicals got these glowing remarks all the time. These glowing articles by the media.
2: Well,
1: yeah,
3: absolutely. In the same way with multiculturalism now.
2: Or you look at commercials, and you know, in other words, there are agendas out there, and uh, there are the, the people who are uh, doing these things, who are dominating the media, and very, you know, they they create these images, and they have intended consequences. So yeah, that's that's the way it works. It's about it's about propaganda and hype more than anything else
3: well right i I don't think i heard i heard the terms multiculturalism or diversity uh, until i reached perhaps my real late teens or my early 20s i'm i'm 49 and and then all of a sudden you heard from them from the government from from the workplace from the schools from the churches all at the same time within months
0: yeah
3: well um yeah, I think Jews, uh, Jewish intellectuals
2: have been promoting multiculturalism, you know, since at least since, you know, World War II, and and uh, it, it had a hard time getting into the mainstream during the 50s because of McCarthyism and, and that sort of thing. But since then, boy, it is just boom, you know, just a huge uh,
3: upsurge. Well, well, in- you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the um, the social sciences. Expanded greatly with the great society and the expansion of big government from the late 60s and with that We got a lot of petty bureaucrats who were all trained in their colleges on Material very much along the lines of the authoritarian personality Yeah If if you look at the book I reviewed uh, by Eric Kaufman
2: um, um, the rise and fall of Anglo-America, he, you know, he's part Jewish uh, academic, and he makes that point that what happened after World War II is that the educational establishment became dominated by these of cosmopolitan, multicultural ideas. And so you had whole generations of college students who were exposed to this stuff, you know, Margaret Mead and all that, and uh, that had a big impact, you know, educated people, started to think of themselves to think of race and multiculturalism in a certain way. even now, you know educated white people tend to be on the left. you know they tend to be more multicultural. When you go down the, the social class ladder among whites uh, they're they're more opposed to that kind of stuff. but uh, that's the thing when you you dominate the educational establishment, you dominate the economic world, you dominate the the most elite media like the New York Times and Washington Post. Then you sort of got your, the, the, the pulse of the country, the whole, you got the brains on your side. And um, that's a huge advantage. In fact, what, what Kaufman was saying, and I agree, it was a top-down revolution. That is, it, the revolution came from the top. It didn't well up from below.
3: Right, it came absolutely. From I The
2: most elite institutions of the society, the most elite media institutions, and the most elite academic institutions, and the most elite political institutions. Oh. It came from the top and down, and, the, you know, also the Supreme Court. All, all that, you know, they, they, so talking about, about the legal establishment. But the, all that came from the top down, imposing this culture on the people.
3: And, the and the it right. go, it, I'm sorry, it goes a lot further than I think you even think, because, um, the, you know, Samuel Untermyer, who who was also... um involved with Woodrow Wilson and, and the appointment of Louis Brandeis to the Supreme Court and things like that. Well well Samuel Untermeyer basically funded Cyrus Schofield. And Cyrus Schofield yes. wrote a very pro Jewish Bible and you know, notes very pro-Jewish, pro Jewish, pro pro Zionist notes to this um to the King James Bible that's published today to this very day as the Schofield Bible. And and it affected most of evangelical Christianity uses this Bible and, and they loved this Bible, and I think that it was the best Christianity the Jews could buy.
2: Uh, yeah, this is one of the most remarkable, you know, events that you can think of. Here's a guy uh, around, you know, this is over 100 years ago now, and he's funding this guy, Schofield, and, you know, they didn't, didn't come to, to fruition for a long time. But but it caught on, as you say, and now Christian Zionism is a huge support for Israel.
3: Right. Christian Zionism is actually an an oxymoron. Yeah. Well, I think you're right about that. Well, I just wanted to point that out to you, if if you understood the, um, you know, and and is you know, Bullinger also has a very popular Bible with a lot of notes, with a lot of Zionist thought, and and he was a good friend of Theodore Herzl's. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know, what, what, what these guys did is they look at the Old Testament, and
2: the Old Testament is all about the restoration of, of Jerusalem, Israel. And uh, so if you take that seriously, well, that, that's what it is. And, um, yeah, and they, they focus more on the Old Testament than the New Testament, obviously. But um, it's very sad to see that. Uh, I, mean, I feel, I, I frankly, that... Uh, can't talk to Christian Zionists. They don't seem rational. I mean, you, you tell them things like well, in Israel, Israel persecutes Christians. really, you know, the, there are all these problems that Christians have in Israel. But they still, you know, doesn't shape them. They, they, yeah. Well,
3: you're right. They're absolutely brainwashed. I, I totally agree. That They are absolutely 100% brainwashed. I have a lot of my own cousins and, and a lot of my own family are Christian Zionists. And, and I can't penetrate the shell either, and and I I don't. I'm think trying I'll to I'll think to... of
2: a way. If you find a way, let me know. Okay?
3: Oh yeah, sure. Does oh. <laughs> your book
1: offer an explanation for the sort of long-term nature of Jewish planning? It seems that they don't
2: mind waiting; they're very patient. Well, yeah, I, I think they try a whole lot of things, and uh, maybe they try a lot of other things that didn't work out. But if you keep trying a bunch of things; something sooner or later will work out, and and uh, you know this was. Um, brilliant thing if you think about it uh, by this guy to do that I've never written about this but I have been correspondence with a Christian you know preacher uh, who's very concerned about it and and how this happened and and the the political nature of the whole thing Uh, and yet there it is uh, and and people just believe this stuff and and there's no talking film at this point so it's, it's a remarkable victory of uh, Jewish influence. So it's a huge payout for comparatively little investment. Exactly. What you know, Very little investment. In fact, Christian Zionists uh, collect money for settlements on the West Bank, hmm. if you can believe that. I mean, in other words, uh, Christian money is going to fund the settler movement in Israel. Uh, and <laughs> it's just amazing. And, you know, if you talk to these Jews, I mean, they must be sort of laughing among themselves. I'd like to be a fly on the wall when they talk about these guys because they're probably making fun of them and, and uh, just probably have no respect for these people at all. I mean, they hate Christianity. Everybody knows that.
3: Well, we we, we actually um, have a totally different view of Christianity than than you might be familiar with because I, I'm a I'm. And, and it's not only myself, but I'm, I'm pretty much a student of the classics and Josephus, and, and I can well establish that the people that we know as Jews today, uh, for the most part, actually descended from the Edomites and the Canaanites of the Old Testament, that they're not um, who they claim to be at all. And, and I believe that the Old Testament was actually written and, and a, def, a defense by a white culture As a defense against these Edomites and Canaanites. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And and that was a white culture very much infiltrated and usurped between 700 BC and the time of John Hyrcanus when he actually folded the Edomites into Judea in 130 BC. And they
0: usurped.
3: Okay, well, they usurped that white culture just the way they usurped European and American white culture today. History is repeating itself, and and that's you know I, I didn't want to bring you th- really want to bring you there tonight, but but that's my my opinion, and I believe that I could I, I can back it up with much history and and, and I'd like to, to see it if you if
2: you've written about some about that. See
3: well, I have an extensive website. I, I have a lot of documents on my website, historical documents. Um, it's Christogenia.org. It, it's C H R I S T O G E N E A.org. Maybe Brian can email you the link. Or, or I'll email it to you because I'm actually planning on, on emailing you to thank you for your time tonight. Okay. So, yeah, I'd, I'd
0: like to see that. I'd like
3: to see that. Yes. Uh, and, um, that, you know, I, I'm a, I consider myself a Christian and a traditional Christian, but I, I believe that, um, uh, you know, my beliefs are founded on I, – I, w- I was an apostate Catholic for, for almost all of my life. I, I couldn't believe anything that they were trying to sell on me and and i understand all of your all of your complaints about christian zionism and catholicism and and the history of catholicism and, and christianity in europe and, and i sympathize with most of your statements but for different reasons than than you might imagine and um yeah, i understand that. it it's actually um i believe that my faith is founded on on the um the earliest history of of at least most of our race, or or much of our race, I I'm, I have a different spin on on ancient anthropology and archaeology than you might, but I I don't think I'm crazy, and and I, I can cite the classics and and archaeological findings as as well as um the the people who have contrary opinions. So,
0: okay, well, again, you know, I'll see
3: that. Send me that website. Yeah, I'll be glad to send you to send you the link to my website. But I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I plan on reading your book because I think it's um from from what I've read about your opinions and from, from an academic viewpoint, your book is invaluable. Uh, you know, well, I, I think you know that that's
2: the thing is to is to write stuff that is. Well, I think I think different people have different roles in this whole thing, and and my role is to sort of try to try to write academic kind of stuff. But I also you know, like I say, I have a website now, the Axon Observer. I, it's more tuned to most people to try to, um, you know, talk about these issues in a way that, that is not really academic but is factually based. And um, so I think that there are different approaches that people have to try and, and hope that something works.
3: Right, because our culture is definitely on a the precipice. There's no doubt.
2: I, I agree with that. And I think a lot of people, anybody who's got, paying attention would have to agree with that. Do you think we have any prospect of taking back these scientific fields that have been hijacked? Well, it's very difficult. Um, I I was just – I wrote a blog article just a couple days ago on this – I was thinking about the climate change thing. You know, they they have all this science on climate change. And then you find out that they take all these emails and they'll take a lot of data probably and and uh, there was a big hotbed uh, piece in the LA Times about that, and pointing out that science is corrupting, and that there's a lot of, you know, dishonesty. Uh, people manipulate data, they have political agendas, and so on. And until we change that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. I mean, we we can't suppose, you know, say you know say I have this really great idea, and it's absolutely based on facts and data and everything else, 100 percent strong. You can't deny it. But it still may not go anywhere in, in, in the scientific community because there, there are these political realities out there. You know, if they, you they think about the social science, we just, we're talking about how the social sciences are dominated by this cultural Marxist point of view. Well, if you're an academic, what are you going to do? You, you you write an article, and if it disagrees with it, if it doesn't go along with that, well, it's just not going to get published or it get, would get ignored. You know, that's kind. Of, that's what happens out there. So it's hard to take these things over. I think sometimes the only thing that can really change things is some kind of really dramatic revolution. And I just, uh, you know, that's, that's a pipe dream at this point.
1: So since they've already, they've basically normalized their revolutionary behavior from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, They've removed our people from the positions of, that we held, the um, upper echelon elite positions, and they've basically usurped those roles for themselves. They've now shut the door.
2: Well, there's no question that Jews are an elite in, in our society. All the data, and, and especially when you look at, at the key areas, uh, the media involvement, and, uh, and uh, again, I was just writing something on the ADL, the Anti Defamation League. They are, of course, they always have their eyes out to see if there's any threats to them. And they're very concerned about the mainstream media. In other words, someone like me, if they can keep me out of the media, it doesn't really matter so much to them. Uh, what they want to do is keep me out of the mainstream. And so I, I think, I think that they see the internet as very dangerous because they can't really control it. But at the same time, even the internet is, you know, it's, it's hard to really get a huge following on the internet. The, the, if if I was on Fox News or you were on Fox News, it'd be a different you know, thing. If we were in the mainstream media, that's what they police. They uh, they watch it like a hawk, and
3: they, they control and they, six Jewish-controlled media conglomerates control 95% of the media.
2: Well, that's basically right, and and uh, and that and that's that's a big part of the problem. That our people don't own media, and so why if we don't own the media, we can't expect uh, the media to be sympathetic to our points of view. So that's the way it is uh, we we have to change that
1: part of the marginalization process we've been
2: pushed into the fringes yeah and you know that th- that becomes dangerous when we become a political minority so um
3: well i basically call the adl the the um the the, <laughs> the political facade for history's longest running crime ring uh, they're basically <laughs> the the public relations firm for history's longest running crime ring is is what well, well, I term them on my website, I, I have a couple little articles about the ADL. But well, I don't. I don't I think. So.
2: In general, I don't. I wouldn't want to call the, the Jewish community in
3: general an organized crime ring. But if well, I a pretty, go a little further than 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 yeah. you do. I'm, I'm I'm not an academic, and, and I could probably stick my neck out too a little. Yeah. But um, I, I know you may not agree with that, and and I wouldn't expect you to.
0: No, but what um, I, what
3: I was
2: going to say though is I think that some of these Orthodox Jewish communities, uh, like some of them in Brooklyn. Do behave essentially like organized crime rates. I mean, there's this big, all these arrests uh, in New Jersey uh, recently and uh, in Brooklyn related to tax evasion, uh, where these, uh, I mean, hundreds of, of Jews involved in these uh, Orthodox Jewish communities would be making these big donations to, to to Jewish charities, but the Jewish charities would kick it back in 95% of it back to the donor, and then they take the whole thing off their taxes. That kind of thing, and, and a long history of approving crime, and that—that that is, people that, that criminals. The that case in New Jersey, uh, the the rabbi whose son was involved in ratting out fellow Jews, they they completely rejected this guy. They renounced his own son, not because uh, that what he said was wrong, but because he ratted on other Jews. In other words, you protect your people, even if they're criminals.
1: That's an so, intense it, group loyalty. That we, culture, really? Would you say that that's an intense in-group loyalty that we don't see in our own people?
3: That that is quite correct. Very true. And, and, and from if what if we, we had it in our own people, we wouldn't have this problem today. If um, if, if the um, the Northern Europeans had such a solidarity, we could never have this problem. I don't think.
2: That's right. We you know we, we tend to be prone to individuals, and we. We tend not to uh, be as cohesive as they are, and that's a big advantage that they have. You know, they, they stick up for each other, they help each other, and they, you know, that,
0: it's a huge advantage. Not
3: Not only don't we have that cohesiveness, that most of us can't imagine that they have that cohesiveness.
0: Yeah, most
2: people, you know, if you read the newspapers, how are you going to ever find that out? You know, you're not going to find it out. So, uh, you know, that's why, that's why the control of the media is so important can never be underestimated.
1: Absolutely. From what I've read of the Talmud and Jewish publications, their religious teachings and their morals, they basically draw a circle around themselves. All the Jews are in the circle. Everybody else is on the outside. And whatever someone inside the circle wants to do to someone outside the circle, it's okay. And the, the, the rabbis stamp their
2: approval on it, or at least they look the other way. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. And you see a lot, a lot of Jews who like have been convicted, like Michael Milka, and uh, back in the nineteen eighties, uh, Mark Rich. You know, they they're they're criminals. You know, they they got this money illegally, but they are not rejected from the Jewish community. They they are in fact uh, they become icons of the Jewish community, and they they give a lot of their money to Jewish charities and so on. So, they, they, they you know, criminality per se is not a problem as long as you know that. Especially if you keep giving, if you give some of your money to, to Jewish charities, there's no In other words, it's not a, a moral point of view. It's a, it's a, it's unprincipled. Um, it's what's good for the Jews, basically. Well,
3: is that it's why good if they don't out- steal it from Jews? It's is that good, why Go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry.
1: I was going to say, is that why there's such an outrage over Bernie Madoff because exactly. he basically stole from other Jews? But Andy Fastow of Enron. Who basically stole from his own employees and the community as a whole? No one really mentions him or cares about
2: him. But Madoff, he's a criminal. Exactly, and it'd and be interesting. I know Fastow made a big contribution to Holocaust memorials and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I don't think Fastow is, is a problem at all in the Jewish community. Madoff is because, yeah, he stole from some from some Jews. Yeah.
1: Well, Madoff is a household word. Most people, unless they followed the Enron case, have no idea who Fastow is. Exactly. And exactly. I know.
3: I know that um, you wrote that um, Horkheimer and Adorno equated fascism with Christianity, and I know for a fact that many of the Jews in Palestine equate Christianity with Nazism. Christians are consistently labeled Nazis.
2: Well, more and more people are, are labeling Israelis Nazis.
3: To tell you the truth,
2: I mean that is a. In fact, Jews. <laughs> Jews are taking steps to prevent that kind of stuff.
3: But well, well, right. They've actually had a There's actually they're worried about a large segment of the left now that has taken yeah. the Palestinian cause. I understand. I
2: mean, if you're if you're an honest leftist, it's pretty hard to rationalize what the Jews are doing to the Palestinians. I mean, it's really hard to do that. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think know I, I think the left the term. is. A
3: problem. I don't. I don't know if honest leftist seems like an oxymoron to me. I'm sorry. Well, the, the okay. People that but, are you know, if you're down.
2: honest about this, you, you should be in favor of multiculturalism. You should yeah, be against right. uh, apartheid and anti-racism and all that. Well, what about Israel? I mean, it's, it's an apartheid state. They they're basically dispossessing the Palestinians. and murdering them. I mean, it's like, well, how can you you know accept Israel and, and accept your principles? I mean, I just don't get it.
3: That's an absolutely true assessment. That they they insist on on, on ganging up against the South African whites and they have to oh, right. up against the the against um, the Israelis. And I wouldn't
1: even call what happened in South Africa apartheid, since every group had their own homeland, and the black Bantustans, they had their own self-government, and they were moving towards the point where eventually they would become a- absolutely independent nations
2: allied with South Africa. All right, but those, you know, they rejected all those nations in the West and mm. did not accept the legitimacy of it. But, you know, in fact, so some... Like Philip Weiss is, you know, he, he's he's sort of an anti-Zionist Jew. He he talks about that that, you know, if if Israel was like South Africa, you know, it'd be it'd <clears throat> be completely marginalized and everything else. But Jews manage to rationalize what they're doing, uh, despite the fact that there's huge resemblance as to what's going on going on in South Africa.
1: And the Jews who claim to be against Zionism. Do you think that that's a genuine, sincere belief they hold to, or do you think that they just think that the Zionist state will bring heat down on the Jewish people as a whole?
2: I, I think so, and like Philip Weiss, I think, you know, he, he would see himself as a Jew, but someone who thinks that what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, especially in the West Bank and Gaza, that that is, in the long run, really bad for Israel, and that it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up in their face, and, and it's going to just infuriate the world so much that, that, um, you know, they're going to go down, and, and uh, so I think he's seeing it, and you, if you read Mearsheimer and Wald, you know, the, the the guys who wrote the book, The Israel Lobby, that's their, uh, they're not Jewish, but they're saying that Israel simply can't keep going in this direction, and I uh, expect to uh, to win, uh, that they have to uh, make concessions, but that's not going down with the, with the right wing in Israel, I mean, and they dominate politics, so. So the, I think Israel will continue to do what it's been doing.
1: The anti-Zionist Jews aren't really moved out of any sense of compassion for their fellow man. They just they're looking further into the future than the Zionists, and they see a point where Israel will be marginalized and isolated.
2: I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's a, it's a political decision. You have J Street now. You know, J Street's the new the new Jewish pro-Israel lobby, but they take a more leftist stance, and they're more critical settlements and stuff like that. Well, a lot of people think that's just a fig leaf, you know, that they're not any different from APAC, uh, in fact, but you know, maybe, maybe it was sort of window dressing kind of stuff. So it's always hard to know if these are genuine feelings or propaganda, window dressing, you know, you never know. But um, there are some, they're trying to show that there's some differences within the Jewish community about Israel. Again, the question is whether those differences are really substantive or not. I think it's the equivalent of a professional wrestling match. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what some knowledgeable people have said, and, and uh, I think that's a good good analogy. So where do you believe that this unity in Jewish opinion comes from? <clears throat> well, I think we have to be aware that in some, some issues, Jews are not totally united, but the, on the basic issues, they tend to be. Mm-hmm. And things like pro-immigration, um, multiculturalism, homosexual rights, things like that, and, you know, attitudes about Israel. I, I think, yeah, there's a remarkable unanimity in, in, among Jews. Uh, and, you know, 80% of Jews voted for Obama. You know? And, and if, you, if you took polls on attitudes towards immigration, you'd probably get 90% of Jews favoring open borders, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there are... Uh, I think there's a consensus among Jews about what their interests are. And so they they have certain certain points of view.
1: Even if they're not educated in what their interests are, they just perceive their interests as being in line with the Jewish community?
0: Well, I, I
2: think that most Jews are plugged into the organized Jewish community. They uh, subscribe to commentary or they go to the synagogue or, or they read Jewish newspapers or online. So they they, they get, you know, there's a certain you know, standard of opinion within the community, I think, yeah.
1: And certainly they they ostracize their own who won't subscribe to the prevailing
2: attitudes. Is that correct? That that is quite correct. uh, If you look at Mir Sharma and Walt's book in the Israel Lobby, and I I make the same point myself, um, showing how Jews who dissent from, from these things, like say you're a Jew and you really think that Jews should get out of the West Bank and get out of the settlement. Well, you'll be ostracized. You won't get any power in the Jewish community, and and you'll be rejected. You'll be pretty much out on the street. You won't have any friends, kind of thing. And and so it's it's a daunting thing. Most Jews don't want to go against these consensuses. It's hard to do that for anybody. I mean, most of all Jews, perhaps.
3: You quote extensively from Wagerhausen. Was he... um he sometimes seems to be enamored by Adorno and Marcuse. Was he, is he a liberal or, or a leftist? I
2: imagine, um, yeah, I, I suppose. I think he was basically sympathetic. One of the criticisms I made of Wheatland, I mean, Wheatland was also very sympathetic to the Frankfurt School. You could see it. Um, so most of the people that write about him are, are sympathetic, yeah. Incredible.
3: It, it's incredible to me that they just didn't have more... Um, Academic opposition in the 30s, yeah, and, and in the 40s. I, I can't, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I guess um, Columbia was totally sold out, and and Brandeis University. I know it's named after a Jewish Supreme Court justice, so I guess it has those leftist leanings, also. Well, it's, it's uh, a Jewish university, university. And, and Berkeley is um, sold out, so <laughs> absolutely leftist. So I guess they were in very sympathetic places. Yeah, the, the academic world uh,
2: had a pretty leftist tinge for a very long time, certainly by the 1930s. And, and so, yeah, uh, they they were – I mean, if you, read, if you read Wheatland's book, I mean, they were not, you know, welcomed with open arms into American sociology. They—they they, It took quite a while, and they it's only when they started to come up with this so-called these empirical studies that they were accepted at all. You know, they, they from their German tradition, they didn't care about getting any surveys or doing any numbers at all. It was all theoretical Marxism. But when they came here, that wasn't selling. And so they they had to get more empirical. But when they became empir- empirical, they, as it were, fudged the data. And
3: there was a lot of shenanigans going on. Well, well okay. did they just... Um did they actually fudge the data, or did they just um, bias the questions?
2: I think both, uh, but probably especially biasing the questions. Uh, for example, with authoritarianism, they never asked about left-wing authoritarians. All they cared about was was right-wing authoritarians. And everybody knows that a lot of leftists are is authoritarian, rigid, Dictatorial and all that. if not more so than people on the right. Oh, the
3: progressives are definitely. I mean, Hillary yeah. Clinton. I love to point out Hillary Clinton is the perfect example of that.
2: Yeah, And, yeah.
3: and domineering. Um, you have to do it my way. Sort of attitude.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think leftists think it's their right to engage in violence. Even they, they, you know, if you go out there, uh, quite a few leftists will break the law. They'll even assault you, if it, you know, because they think they're righteous from doing it, and they, they feel, uh, you know... And
3: that's okay exactly to... how they acted during the Weimar Republic.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. Wh- which I, I consider us to be in a new Weimar Republic right now, by the way. That, that's oh, my political position, anyway. And the, another the, double uh, standard. Yes, it is absolutely a, a hypocritical double standard.
1: Well, particularly since they'll eventually get a presidential pardon, and, and then they'll wind up a, a university professor at Columbia. Right, right,
2: and
3: that happened well, even Bill Ayers, when he crawled out of the, out of the cave he was in, he he went to Columbia. He attended Columbia in in eighty seven, so. Yeah, yeah
2: and, and for someone like that, they, you know, they're they're infinitely forgiving. He's got a great career, and, but uh, if you had racialist attitudes, you would never set foot in a
3: university, you, can, you know that'd be
2: it. You never get a position as a graduate student.
3: And that's incredible. But I believe he does has racial he does have racialist attitudes. He just has the right racialist attitudes. And
1: yeah, yeah. So would you say in all in all the studies they were conducting, they predetermined what they wanted their conclusions to be, and they structured their so-called experiments to arrive at the conclusions they
2: wanted. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, at uh, you know they had the whole theory of anti-Semitism that they wrote before the actual empirical data of the authoritarian personality, mm-hmm. and they ended up you know with the same conclusion, I mean, it's just supposedly. Um, and, and if you look at how they interpreted that data, I, mean, I try to – I sort of belabor that. I, mean, I think Chapter 5 gets kind of hard going for people who aren't into psychology. But it, it, it the way they interpreted the family data was just, just obtuse. It was just crazy. And, again, they, they used psychoanalysis to do that. But it was not the work of an honest scientist. This, these were people who wanted to come to a certain
3: conclusion. Right, they had an agenda. This—I I have no doubt. After reading your chapter five, I had no doubt they had an agenda.
0: It, yeah.
3: it's it's absolutely. Um, and and knowing uh, uh, with my own, um, experience that I, I—it was uh, absolutely credible to me. Uh, I mean, I—I yeah. I, there wasn't any way that I doubted your account. <laughs> well, I think it's right. I think it's right. Yeah, it's an excellent. I can't wait to read the whole book. To be honest with you. Okay. Good. Well, which it's I ordered it this morning. I, I should have ordered it a couple of weeks ago because I've known for um, for ten days now that you were going to be here with us tonight. But I I ordered it this morning. Procrastination is. <laughs> <laughs> In the same way. I haven't
2: bought my Christmas presents yet.
3: Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I, I don't know how long you want to continue. That. I I mean I very much enjoyed being having you be here with us tonight. And well, well, and maybe I'll I can do it again soon. sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd, um, maybe after we read your book. Um, okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. Good idea. Yeah, that'd be great. I I very much appreciated this and and very much enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm
1: thank good. you for thank you for coming on, sir. And if you want, I will email you a copy of the archived show when it, when it, as soon as it's archived.
0: Okay. I appreciate that.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. very lovely.